I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Pronman, back with another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. It's going to be a really fun time on the prospect scene. The World Juniors are right around the corner. we got some rosters starting to come out for that, some big camps around the corner for the U.S. and Canada. Corey just got back from a week in Canada. We're going to talk about what he saw when he was there and a fantastic Madve Michkov story that Corey published this week. We're going to talk plenty about that. That's all coming up, but I did want to start with Probably the highlight of the week in the NHL. Might have a, a shot early contender for highlight of the year in the NHL. Trevor Zegras's absurd pass over the top of the net for an assist uh, for Anaheim against the Sabres on Tuesday night. Zegras is completely on fire right now. As we record this, he's got eight assists in his last four games. Completely in his bag. He's doing crazy stuff. Uh, and, and he's pulled even as we record this with Lucas Raymond for the rookie scoring lead. Corey, what are you seeing out of Trevor Zegras right now? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a lot in... Trevor, that you saw at earlier ages, um, and it's just he's found a way to transition this into the National Hockey League. You know, when you watch Trevor as a junior, he did crazy, you know, stuff. He was at the NTDP. It was something you saw frequently. We watched him with BU, something you saw frequently. But it's also interesting when you look at Trevor's progression in that, you know, he's obviously been always been a top, top prospect. Um, but it's not like 
he was always a no doubt he's going to be a star. There's no argument against it coming up. You know, he was obviously he was on the team with with Jack Hughes and and uh, and all those stars of the NTDP. Uh, he was the third player picked on that team. You know, behind Hughes and and Turcotte. Uh, he did. You know, his numbers in the USHL were excellent, but they weren't historic. His numbers at BU were were good, but they weren't anything amazing. Um, but it was always you watch him, and there were things about him that were unique. That you watched how he could think the game particularly, and he just tried stuff. Whenever I've watched him over the last five years, that just looked you know special. That guys out other players just don't try. Um, it's funny when I you know look at like how I use my scouting scale, for example. Um, sometimes readers will argue that I'm too conservative. Like, you know, I, you know, I don't go to like to the extreme parts of the scale sometimes. And that's something I hear a lot from NHL teams that NHL teams, whatever scale they use for creating attributes, whether it's one to 10, one to five, 20, 80 from baseball, whatever. A lot of teams tell me a lot, or at least a lot of people who are in management will tell me that a lot of their guys will just stick to like the, to like the average part of the curve, a lot of like three to fives or whatever whatever wherever the average is kind of thing on their scale um and but but i think the reason why you do that as an evaluator is when there's a special case that comes along like a trevor zegras whose hockey sense is extraordinary when you have a guy like Connor mcdavid come around whose skating is is extraordinary uh if you keep on giving out 10 out of 10s on your scale you know like they're candy you don't have the right uh, spacing to, to give uh, the proper attribution to a guy who ha- who is really special in a given attribute. And, and that's what I think Trevor has always been. He's always been a guy I've given the highest hockey sense grades to that I possibly can and will continue to do. And there was never, like I said, there were some issues on the skating and you weren't sure if he, you know, his size was always, he was never like the greatest all around player, things you can nitpick, but the things he can do with the puck are special and, Every time you've watched him in Anaheim this season, even the games where he wasn't scoring, I still thought he was doing a lot of really creative things. And um, I think he's going to be a star in the league for a long time. I, I think so too. And I think through 25 games, his, I don't know what you want to call it, sizzle reel or whatever, he's already in the tier of like a McDavid or a McCarr. And, and, and that's where you talk about like wanting to be you know, conservative with those high grades because you, you don't want to have a boy cry wolf situation. You you want, if you're a scout, when you go to your uh, scouting director, when you go to your GM and say, no, this guy can do crazy things. It's got to mean something. Uh, Trevor Zegers is, is in that tier already. And I don't, I, I don't say that with hyperbole. I, he's there's Those are the only two guys that, that meets. I mean, I guess Austin Matthews with some shooting stuff, but, but in terms of the way he manipulates the puck, manipulates defenders, it's on another level. Yeah, I think it's not it's he's obviously really skilled, but for me it's just like the way his brain works is different. Like he tries things that are different. He, you know, obviously because like like the, like the saucer passion behind the net is the obvious yeah. example, but like there's plenty of other things that he does throughout the game that are just, you know, unique types of passes and stick handling displays that that other players can will try and like practice and stuff like that, but he has the the skill and uh, to, to execute these things during a game and, and do them well. I mean, I think the spin pass has become a staple in his game yeah. uh, right now. 
Um, and I'm sure at some point people will catch on. But they might not too. I think you know he's just he's just really deceptive uh, out there. And one of the things that's been interesting from Anaheim is, on a much lesser extent, has been on that line has been like the resurgence of Sonny Milano, who if some readers might recall coming up was like the super skilled guy who did all the flashy things with the puck as a junior and had had all like the highlight reel plays. I remember going to go watch Sonny when he was 17 and he did a play like that. When I watched him, he was 17. He did like a little, it was even like more extreme. Like he did like a bank pass, like off the boards over the net, trying to hit his teammate kind of thing. And it, it didn't work, but I think it's, you see those two players playing together and their brains both work in somewhat similar ways. Obviously Stegers is several calibers higher than something Milano. Um, but that resurgence has been interesting to me on that line. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, he's a near-point-per-game player as we record this, Sunday Milano is. I mean, the Red Wings, just to give you some context, the Red Wings showed the Zegras highlight during a game, like at a, at a whistle break yesterday. They showed another player on another team's highlight on their Jumbotron during a game. Yeah. I just think it was a great day for the sport. I think that's the kind of thing you want to see if you're the National Hockey League, if you're a hockey fan. You want to see moments like these that transcend the Anaheim Ducks that get everybody talking like this is the kind of thing like you know at least from my perspective I'm sure from many hockey people and media hockey fans like your phone was blowing up with people sharing this kind of thing and people talking about it and saying you know how how great is it that we have an athlete like this um, playing in the NHL who is so young and will be able to watch do stuff like this for the foreseeable future Um, like I said it was just a it was just a, a great day for hockey I think. So I guess the the obvious question here is right now where does Trevor Zegers sit in in the Calder race? Because a couple of the Detroit guys got out to really hot starts. Raymond Insider they were the rookies of the month in October and November. Uh, Zegers certainly staking an early claim for December. He's got eight assists in his four games so far in this month. Um, where does he sit in that race right now? Is is it right somewhere in that three? Is he pulled ahead? Yeah, I think he's one of the three right now. Um, my my instinct is. To it basically, and, you know, my instinct is if you had to ask me who the Calder winner is, I would it would be one of Cider or Zegris right now with probably Raymond at three. Um, I mean, they all they all have reasonable claims uh, to it. Uh, just based on how you know how highly I think of Zegris, you know, I I think that, you know, and how well he's played all season. Even like I said, even when he wasn't scoring, I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to go on a really strong run here going forward and and. And does his best to separate, but I think where Cider will have a claim, especially now that he's scoring at really high rates and playing lots of minutes. I know Calders don't usually go to defensemen, but I think he's he's doing the best he can to stay relevant in that discussion. And um, if somehow, you know, I think with interesting for both of those teams is realistically, you hoped that both of those teams would show some mild improvement, but I don't think you ever thought they'd be in the playoff discussion. And if I, I know. I personally don't love it when awards come down to playoffs, but just, you know, using how I think things will play out. If either of those teams do make the playoffs, that will become part of the discussion. It It is an interesting wrinkle here because you can kind of see a, a Raymond versus Zegris race for kind of the forward, th- those who are inclined to kind of go with the, you know, more offense and, and maybe some more kind of highlight stuff versus, cider on the side of kind of the overall impact on a team in in 22 minutes but i will say 
earlier this week, I, I wrote that if the if my Calder ballot were due today, I think I would be leaning Raymond, partly because I think Raymond is every bit as complete as Sider so far. I mean, Sider obviously playing the defensive role and, and he's more physical. That, I mean, that's a fact. But but I think Raymond's defensive game and, and responsibility has really shown through for him. Um, and, and so I think that's good. And it's something to watch too here, because w- when I think about the argument for a defenseman, um, especially one like Sider, who, you know, he is, he actually, he is scoring at a crazy rate, but he's not kind of in kind of the Kale McCarr mold or Quinn Hughes mold where the offense is the big selling point. Um, I, I think about, well, yeah, it's the complete impact, but I, I actually would say from what I've seen so far, I think Raymond has been pretty close, if not as complete to Sider. So there's some interesting wrinkles through that whole race, but, but Zegris is going to have one really big thing going for him. And that's that. Every voter will have seen like his 10 best plays. Um, and, and I don't even know that we've seen the best of it yet. Like that's the crazy thing about him is last night may not have even been the, be- the best highlight he's going to have this year. Right. No, I'm sure like once we get to the spring and NHL, P- uh, the NHL writers ballots go out, uh, you'll, you'll just see that setting well on a goal on highlights, you know, on cycle pretty much. And people will be talking about that as a very strong argument. Yeah. All right, uh, let's transition from there into from someone who is is uh, starting to make their their star level NHL impact now. A few guys starting to make their star level NHL impact now to a guy that it's going to be a while until we see making a star level impact in the NHL, but it certainly seems like has that kind of trajectory. Matve Mitchkov, you wrote a big feature, an A one feature on the Athletic about him earlier this week. Um, it's it's an outstanding feature. It's a really layered, complex feature. I guess before we get into kind of the, the subject matter of it, can you tell us a little bit about the reporting process when you, when you go to write about Matvey Mitchkov, who comes up in the, the Scott St. Petersburg organization in the KHL? Yeah, I mean, uh, his is a really interesting case because uh, when he first started playing the high-level hockey, he played obviously hockey before and been a guy I've heard about. He, he first started playing high-level hockey right during the mix of the delayed 2020 NHL draft, right during the fall. And like people are texting me like, Hey, look how good he is and stuff like that. And like, and you're like, yeah, that's nice. But, but there's a draft in three weeks. So I'm kind of, kind of busy <laughs> right now. And, and he kind of put it in, in the back burner. Uh, and then right around the winter time, he signs this extension that kind of rattles people a little bit. Uh, you know, Russian players sign extensions all the time. Obviously, you know, Kuznetsov signed an extension. Kaprizov signed an extension. Kirill Marchenko signed an extension. Um, you know, that's not an uncommon thing to do. But this was a five-year extension. That is a very long time. Um, and this guy is not considered just a good prospect. He's considered a guy who has a very reasonable chance if everything goes right in his development over the next year and a half to be a top five pick, maybe a top three pick, plausibly even a first overall type of talent. We'll see whether he goes there or not. Um, so that's when we start looking at this uh, story and like, okay, this is different. Like this is, you know, you, you don't see this too often. And I think we've always wanted to write about the Scott organization too in that it's uh, it's slowly becoming a really dominant force in European hockey in terms of the fact that almost all of the top Russian junior players tend to end up in this organization right now. You look at a lot of the top high Russian picks of the last few years, Vasily um, Podkolzin, Marek Kusadinov, Fedor Svechkov, Ivan Morozov, Kirill Marchenko, Yaroslav Askarov, Nikita Chibrikov, 
uh, Kirill Kersanov, they all play for Ska. Now, there's some exceptions there. You're going to have Ivan Miroslavchenko and Daniil Yurov in the next draft, who are high picks, who will not be Ska players. Um, but for, for the most part, I mean, you you watch now their, their U20 team, their Russian national team. It's primarily comes from one organization. So they seem to be accumulating a lot, a lot of influence in Russia. People seem to be uh, – players seem to want to go play there. And we we saw these two elements with Mishkov signing the extension with Ska. Um, even, and again, if he's also one of those guys who went to Ska who wasn't originally from there. He was from the Yaroslavl organization originally. Um, that – we thought made it interesting to kind of dive into this story, which is not, it's not easy to read about Russian players. I think a lot of our colleagues who have had to try and do that will understand is, you know, they, they don't, you know, live on your side of the world. A lot of them don't speak English. Um, it's not easy to kind of make, you get access to them. I only spoke to Mitchkov because I was at the Holinka Gretzky cup and, and he was there and it was the U18 world. We weren't able to do in-person interviews, but we were able to do that there. So they were able to talk to him for a bit, talk to some of his teammates and, and people around him, that kind of thing. Um, and then, so th- that was obviously a good base. And then we kind of started asking the question of, okay, you know, how do we approach the SCA organization? And, and, we, and after discussing with my editors, I think we all kind of thought that, the person we really wanted to talk to was the person running the organization, uh, Roman Rottenberg, who was both the general manager of SKA and the, the general manager of, law, of a lot of the Russian national teams that Mitchkov and many other SKA players play for. Um, and so those were a lot of the dynamics that went into it, talking to a lot of people in, in the Russian hockey, talking to a lot of people in the NHL about this story and, you know, and how they kind of would, would approach this as, as a decision maker uh, because I think, you know, not this summer, but next summer, um, I think this is going to be a discussion point. Uh, the, you know, the entire draft cycle is depending, especially on how well he plays over the next two years and how well other players play. Um, it's, I, I think this is going to be one of the most fascinating debates in the draft we've seen in a very long time. I agree with you. And so I want to put a pin in the Scott talk for a second. We're going to come back to them. I think they're a big character in this story. But there was a couple quotes from the scouts that you spoke with for this story that that jumped off the page at me. The first one was from a scout who said, he has figured out how to do the hardest thing in hockey, scoring goals, better than anyone I've seen in a while. Uh, And and another who said, he can put pucks anywhere he wants them. I mean, these are... The kinds of things that you hear about superstar prospects. You, you pointed out that he is the youngest player to ever suit up for uh, Russian senior national team, getting younger than Alex Ovechkin, uh, who obviously was, was the previous youngest player to do that. This is the profile of, of a special talent. Can you take us a little bit more in depth on, on Michkov, the scorer? How dangerous a player is he? Yeah, I think... You know, there are some things about his aesthetics that may not initially look like potential NHL star. You know, he's not Alex Ovechkin, the athlete. He's not this 6'2", you know, 210-pound, you know, bull with great speed who's going to overpower people. Like, that is not his athletic profile. He doesn't look like Ovechkin. He doesn't look like Kovalchuk. He doesn't look like Malkin. Um, so those are the things kind of working against him, and that might may not help him become a superstar, but I would say his puck skills and particularly his hockey sense um, are of the special quantity. You know, we were talking about early about Zegras and, and I think there, you could have said some of those things about Zegras other than his size. He has fine, you know, he's six, one, six, one and a bit, whatever it is. Um, 
but like he wasn't like you know he's not this athletic um, you know, brute where and, and Mitch Kov is like five ten five eleven, but the things he does with the puck are very unique. I mean, just watching him um, in junior hockey, watching him in international tournaments, uh, like the U eighteen World Championships last spring or the Linka Gretzky. When he gets into the zone, uh, he can make some really unique plays as a puck handler. Uh, he, he makes guys miss really consistently. Uh, he and I think he's really smart. Zegers is really smart in a special way in how he makes passes. Obviously, on, in <laughs> easy to say the the day after that Sunny Milano goal. Um, but Matvey Michkov is very smart. Like he's a great passer. He's he's really creative in how he um, manipulates defenses, and he's very creative in how he tries to score goals. You know, we wrote in the piece quoting scouts who said he's one of the more dangerous place players they've seen from behind or the side of the net. And when you like, I had one scout. I was, I was sitting with one scout at the Holinka Gretzky, you know, who kind of said to me, "I've never seen a guy be like as dangerous from behind the net as this guy." Um, you know, he just. He's just so creative in how he tries to fool defensemen and goalies, um, and uses you know you know unique or weird angles to his advantage. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you think might be oh this is a kind of little trick they'll figure it out, but I think even when you watch him playing like in the KHL or play with the senior national team, these pro level goalies are not expecting this. These are not things that other players try. Which is kind of what we reminiscent of the Zegers conversation we just had. You know, these are he makes unique uh, attempts to score goals. Yeah, he has the great shot, and he can you know score goals in traditional ways, like getting chances from the slot and driving the net and having a good wrist shot, good hand, all that kind of stuff. But the ways he scores in conventional ways, whether it's the lacrosse goals, uh, whether it's banking pucks in off off goalie goalies' legs or backs or stuff like that, or um, those are what make him really unique, and it's why he scored goals at incredible rates at any level or tournament that he goes to. He just scores um, at really high levels, and I think that you know makes him really exciting as a prospect and somebody who I think will become a, a really uh, top NHL scorer whenever he does arrive. I want to make sure everyone goes and, and reads the piece, but I'm going to kind of talk you through a couple of the clips here just because I think they serve the point you're making really well. Um, one of them, he, he's circling behind that. He is very much in the corner. Like, you know, he, he's in the, I guess you'd call it over the, over the goalie's blocker shoulder kind of in the corner. The kind of play that you see players, you know, they, they're either going to go for a wraparound, they're going to wheel, but more likely they're going to try to take a pass into the slot. And the goalie has it played reasonably well for that situation against 99% of, of players. Um, but Mitchkov sees that he can probably bank it off the goalie's upper back. He does it right between the shoulder blades, for, for at least from what I can tell. I can't tell perfect from the angle, and it's a goal. And then you stack one right next to it where he's coming down the side. He is at the goal line. The goalie, in this case, has left him uh, about... I don't know, six inches maybe, but it's a weird angle and he's going to have to do it exactly right if he's going to get it there because most of the time, most players are putting this thing back to the slot or they're just going to play for a rebound or they're going to wheel around um, and try to try a wraparound. Mitchkov puts it in the net. Uh, and, and I think that they served your point perfectly. It really uh, illustrates that that point about how he can score from anywhere 
Um, even in on plays where any reasonable goalie might think, okay, at least from where he is right now, he can't beat me. Right, and the things that he went through, like the, the decisions that a typical player would make. Yeah, a, pl- a player comes down the left side, defenseman's level with him. He doesn't have speed to get around the guy. Uh, you're thinking a couple of things. You're either going to put it on. You're just going to shoot it, shoot it at the net. You know, hope for a weird bounce on like that. Uh, you you maybe. You maybe you you wheel back, you hold it, try and cycle it down, look look for somebody coming with you on the play, um, or you try and beat the defenseman with your hands and try and get a play to the net. In 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 Mitchkov's brain, there was a fourth option that most players don't consider: of what if I just try and bank it off the goalie's ribs and in kind of thing. Uh, and that's what I think make him special. It's not those specific plays; it's the way his brain operates in a different way than other players. Yep. Uh, and that's what makes you excited as an evaluator. I think you can watch, especially like someone like me, where I watch you know so much hockey over so many levels. Players start to look similar. You know, at the end of the day, even when they're top prospects, a lot of guys look similar to other to many players you've seen before. But when you see somebody who does something different, who looks different in some significant aspect, uh, that gets you excited and be like, hey, we we might be cooking with fire here. Yeah. I mean, when when you have a prospect of this caliber, he's in the 2023 draft. I think if he were a Canadian or if he were an American, this is a guy that we would be talking about at least having the potential to step right out of the draft into the NHL. And that, I think, is what makes his contract extension so noteworthy here, right? Because as you mentioned, you're used to having Russian players uh, sign extensions with, with, with their Russian teams, Ska in particular. This one runs for a while. This one would take him till, I think you said it was 2026? Yes, it was a five-year extension. This was the first year of the five-year extension. So he has one more, you know, four more years after this, one being his draft season, and then he is signed for an additional three years after his draft season. So he will have to play until the end of the 2026 season with Ska, who is typically a contender in the KHL. So realistically, if you're an NHL team, um, you are waiting at least – three years after you draft him. So it'll probably be the fourth season after you draft him that realistically he'll play in your lineup, barring your team making some deep playoff run. And that's where I think Scott comes back into the fold here, because when you said three years, you said at least three years. And I I think that has to be at least in the mind of anyone who would consider drafting Madve Michkov, because he has shown that he's willing to sign for long. And Scott is really an organization that I think as you as a source said in your story, quote, is attempting to become the 33rd NHL team. I don't think that source meant that literally, but but you pointed to the, the new arena that they're going to have complete, a 22,000-seat arena, the the kind of um, players they've landed with, Nikita Gusev, Alexander Volkov. Like These are guys who were NH- in the NHL or right on the door of the NHL. I don't know how much Volkov played in the NHL. Um, you'll have to let me know there, but but this is a, this is not an ordinary international team. Yeah, played with Tampa, played with with Anaheim for stretches over over the last year. Yeah, I mean it's yeah they're obviously not the NHL team. Like you know, if a real you know an average NHL team played them, they probably would win, and probably it probably would be a rather one sided contest. Uh, but they're they're building in that direction where they're trying to compete with talent, with the best in the world, not just not just the best um, in the KHL. Uh, I think, and they're doing that through a variety of ways. One is because they're just a good team, and they, and yes, they have resources. But as several sources in the KHL point out to me, it's not just that they have resources. You know, there are other teams in the KHL who are very wealthy. 
Uh, you look, they've made real significant investments to look attractive. Um, their, their hockey city, uh, facility, which is like the, where the center of their, their rinks are, where they have a bunch of training facilities and medical centers and, uh, various other tra- practice rinks and stuff like that. Like they've, they have, you know, really sophisticated set of infrastructure there in St. Petersburg, um, that, you know, everybody I talked to, um, about Scott mentioned over and over again that they, they've, invested into the team, you know, rather substantially um, to try and, and be competitive to, you know, to get the NHL players like Leo Komarov commented on, 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 on their infrastructure when he signed and Mafe Michkov on the other end of the H spectrum also mentioned that as a prime reason for why he signed. Uh, so, you know, that's, you know, part of the, their, their direction right there, their strategic direction to go with, uh, stadium that's going to be among the largest hockey stadiums, maybe even the the largest hockey stadium in, in the world in terms of in terms of seating, um, that they're going to try and open for the World Championships in in two years. Uh, like I said, you know they're you know like I said they're not actually you know they're not an NHL team, but uh, the, as as their general manager Roman Rottenberg told me, they're building in a way that they want to emulate some parts of NHL teams. And that is why you can understand the apprehension from, um, you know, there's an executive you quoted in your story who was worried about drafting from Scott without being an original six team or without having a beach somewhere nearby was the comment that he made. Um, because th- if they stay in Russia with Scott, like they can have an environment at least um, that can approximate it, right? I mean, you can understand why that that would be a scarier proposition than just any other uh, non-NHL team in the world. Yeah, I mean, we even had, I was even reading through like the comments of our story. There was one guy who said he 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 met Mitchkov and he said all he does is spend his time at the Ska facilities there in St. Petersburg and you know all he does is train there and and that seems to be the story I hear from everyone else is they just really enjoy being with the team. Um again, obviously it is a St. Petersburg is a, is a great city. You have, you know, a great facilities there and it's a team that is, you know, fr- you know, it's kind of symbiotic with with Russian hockey development, all the, you know, there's a lot of the players there end up on the Russian national teams. It's not because they play with Scott, it's just because they've been aggressive in acquiring all the best players. They they all just seem to play together. So it's a rather unique environment. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's there's some reasonable apprehension. I mean, when Kirill Marchenko um, was a NHL uh, draft eligible, there were a lot of teams that were concerned they weren't able to get him over. Um, and he has one more year left on his contract. But he did sign a two-year extension with Scott, and when that happened, that was when the text started going around, like, "Yeah, like, see, this is kind of what we were, t- we were talking about," kind of thing. Um, so those are, you know, we'll see. I will see whether he signs with Columbus or not uh, this summer. I think it's possible he might. But those are all uh, factors involved uh, with when looking at a Scott player. Mitchkov, though, is a different, you know, caliber because you expect a guy who's a star caliber young talent. To go to the NHL, and I still think at the end of the day he will. I think you know what. By the time he's twenty-two, he probably will have a lot of success already at various levels, U uh, twenty men's and the KHL. And I think by that point, it would seem like it's going to be the reasonable next step. But there's no guarantees, and Ska themselves has said, you know, not to no surprise, have said they're going to when they, when I when I talk to them, they said they're going to you know obviously offer him an, a new deal, which is 
perfectly reasonable within their rights. Um, but it's something that's going to be a variable that comes up whenever that KHL deal does expire. The, the view I tend to hold on on all of this is one that uh, you had an HL executive uh, share, which was, I think at the end of the day, all the good ones come over was the quote. And I that tends to be my my view as well. I think for that reason, I think Matvey Michkov is going to be drafted in the top three because the talent, frankly, just seems like it's too high to, to not. It's too high to pass. But I think the 2023 draft is, is interesting in this too, because there are really three players who as of this moment right now and it's a, it's an it's an evolving process yeah there's a fourth one who's got there's a guy i watched last week who's i don't know if he's in that three but he's got a chance but yeah there's three there's three guys connor bedard and fatilli yeah uh, bedard was regina of the whl and fantilli of the ushl who, who are in the mix and here's the interesting part with mitch Kuff is let's let's fast forward a year and a half from now we'll go to the draft and it's like a three-way tie like it's there's three great prospects and, you know, you, you can't go wrong with any of them. Obviously, he's going to go third. The other two are centers. They don't have the KHL deal. It's fine. But, like, you know, if Connor Bedard's not lighting it up this year, I still think he's an unreal prospect. But let's just hypothetically say he doesn't kill it next year. Like, he has a really nice year, but he doesn't he doesn't light the world on fire in the WHL. And Adam Fentilli's pretty good in Michigan, but he doesn't, you know, have an amazing year. And then Mitchkov just is unreal. He goes to the KHL. He's... Top six four on one of the best teams. He goes to the World Juniors. He's like the best player there, so on and so forth. And he's clearly like the best prospect. That's a dynamic that I think is the most interesting of this fact uh, pattern. Is is what do you do with this player if he walks into next year's draft and he's not just in your opinion the best player, but he's the best player by some degree. That I think will be a a real daunting task for an NHL organization to, you know, do you have um, the security and do you have the guts to make that selection? I think those two things go hand in hand too, right? If you're a GM, having the guts to make that selection goes along, uh, is going to come back to how secure is my job? How confident am I that I'm still going to be the GM here when he signs? Yeah, I mean, like looking to the organization you cover, I think Steve Eisman can make that pick. Yeah. Um, can Kevin Adams make that pick in Buffalo, though? I don't know. I mean, can can right? I mean, and, the, and these are two teams that could very well be in that mix. You know, I mean, the Red Wings have taken a step this year, but we see teams. Ottawa had it had it happen last year into this year, where it's it's good one year. I don't think. I, you think Pierre Doran can make that pick? I don't like that. Would be after after what you know when they thought like they'd be make some progress and now they're not if they're actually at the bottom again next year like do you think he can you think him and that ownership can make a straight sell to the fans we got this guy but wait three years on him right and and conversely like you know how, how does it play because there's some teams where okay maybe you're a really good team and you and you just falter you stumble a little bit and you you, you end up just outside the playoffs let's say you win the lottery from i guess whatever the the uh, lowest spot in the standings is that you can actually be the yeah, number that, one. Yeah, pick. that happens. Like when Carolina yeah. wants the Sveshnikov. Exactly. Like that. So on one hand, team team like that probably has fairly fairly secure situation um, because they're they're a good team. On the other hand, they're a team that could really use a, a really good player on an ELC as soon as possible to fit their window. So there's all these dynamics here, and I guess you could really say the same thing about bad teams. Bad teams need to get better quicker too. So it's a really right. fascinating yeah. picture. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at the Arizona situation. And yeah, they're not going to be good for a while. So you could argue, oh, they could wait three years. But then you have to look at their finances and you'd be like, hey, you know, can we, we'd like to sell some tickets too. 
And now, you know, instead of getting Connor Bedard playing in our lineup next and Adam Fantilli in our lineup next season, which we can like market and stuff like that, you've got to wait an extra three years before the player comes. And we just, you know, talk about them theoretically in our lineup for the next three years, which, and three years in a hockey ops management cycle is a really long time. You know, just think about your team that you, that you're a fan of and think of where they were three years ago. Think of the players that were on that team, the players that are no longer there. Uh, a lot changes in three years. And I, I, I really wonder when we get to this point in, in two, two summers from now, uh, who will have, uh, I, I guess, uh, the guts and not just the guts, but it's because it, it's not only about guts. It's, you can argue it's a whether it's a smart or not smart decision, uh, depending on where you have to pick him versus the other guys. Yeah, the last thing I want to I want to ask here is is toward the end of the story, you allude to kind of if if you're an NHL team, like you you really got to do your homework here to to know whether whether this is going to be the right play for you. And, and I think you're alluding to that with what you said on is it smart or not smart. Uh, there was a quote in there um, from I think an NHL source who said like. You're, you're going to really have to do your homework on how serious the NHL intentions are, whether he would want to play in your organization. What does that homework look like, you know, a year and a half out for, we just talked about some of these teams. If you're a team that expects to be in in the lottery that, that could uh, have a shot at this guy, what does that homework process actually practically look like? Well, Mishkov himself has said he's not talked to any NHL people so far, which he shouldn't. Again, his draft is two years away. Like yeah. it's, I think in terms of that discussions, you're probably having discussions with with his reps, you know, his his agents. He has a, he has a North American agent, and he has a and he has a European agent, and you're probably having early discussions with them um, about what what does he like, like you know, would would he want to live in this in my city, you know, where what is he, you know, where do you think his head is going to be regarding the NHL? I don't think those are conversations that have to happen frequently, but I think there are a couple of organizations, some of which we've highlighted already that kind of have an idea that they might be in the mix for this guy yeah. in, in two years from now. And I, you know, obviously that, the, that recruiting effort will go more into effect next season. Um, but I think there's no like recruiting going on right now, but there's a lot of questions being asked right now. Like, okay, this is a unique case. Um, what else do we need to know about him? And when it's time, when the next draft rolls around, what are the, what, what steps do we need to take, essentially? Should be a fascinating saga to watch play out. Um, and certainly, I, I cannot wait to see uh, what, what's next for Matvey Mitchkov. Yeah, I said, I mean, it's a really fascinating case. And it was a really fascinating article to do. Um, you know, it was an important uh, story for us. And it was an important story for Scott, too. Like, I, when I, we talked to them, I got the impression that they were taking it uh, very seriously. And they saw this as an opportunity to, to, to tell their story to a different audience than the Russian media who they would talk to uh, uh, the, uh, more frequently. So like I said, it was, it was a really fascinating uh, story to dig into. Tremendous work, and I'd recommend uh, everybody go check it out. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Uh, let's transition from that into your trip that you just got back from in Canada. You saw a, a bunch of players, really. But but I want to start with uh, the Capital City Challenge you were at, tournament between uh, three of Canada's U17 teams and the women's national team. Um, and, and a few players that, that stood out to you there. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously that was a, you know, a large event, a lot of players uh, from, from the best uh, 05s in Canada that we'll have to know really well in, in the coming years. Um, but there were four players in particular that stood out to me, all four being forwards um, in terms of like the next, you know, who are the top prospects probably in the next age group. There was one defenseman, Cameron Allen, who was good? And there's one other defenseman, a couple other defensemen who were who were interesting, but these four players thought to distinguish themselves. Uh, the first is Callum Ritchie uh, with Oshawa, who has been off to a, a great start um, in the OHL. I believe he was the second overall pick in his OHL draft and ha- has looked the part. Uh, he ha- he's a point a game right now in Oshawa as a 16 year old, and just really looks like a clear top pro prospect. And he was kind of the guy I was hinting at. With that group of three for the 23 draft, I had to pick one other guy who I think might sneak in there. If he has like a really great uh, season, it would be him because he's 6'2", he's a good skater, he's extremely skilled, very creative as a passer, he can score goals. You know, He kind of looks like the complete package. You know, If he grows an inch or two, you're talking about a guy who looks like Kirby Doc. Um you know, whether that actually happens or not, you know, we'll see how the rest of his seasons goes. Like, so he's not in that three play, not in that tier with those three players, but but he's a guy who looks like he has a lot of really interesting dimensions to his game and um, could potentially have has a chance to be a really really high pick in the 2023 draft. Um, on his line there was Zachary Benson, who plays in Winnipeg of the Western Hockey League, who's also off to a great start, playing a big role in one of the top teams. Uh, in the West, I think he's all, his production is also um, around the point per game mark, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he was one; of, I think he was the top scorer in the tournament. Uh, his skill level is uh, exceptional; like really, really uh, creative puck handler, really good passer. Uh, he kind of has gives me like a little bit of a Cole Perfetti vibe, not like the exact same type of player, but similar size, not incredibly strong skater but the the skill is just like really really high end um so and and the scoring ability is, is really good so he's really a fascinating player for next year's draft um Braden Yeager who plays in Moose Jaw the Western Hockey League uh, looked quite good um you know 511ish guy who's you know so not the biggest guy but he's a good skater he's got pretty good hands he sees the ice well but his best asset is his shot, uh, his shot, like his one-timer. You, you hear it from from a couple of doors down, you know, outside the stadium kind of thing. It, it's a really hard shot. And, you know, you look at that's the kind of guy. It's not just he's a, a hard shot, you know, it's kind of, you know, goal-scoring winger. He's a center. So that makes him really interesting. If he stays at 5'11", I don't know if he can, like, be, like, a top five, top eight type pick with his skill set. 
you know, maybe more like eight to 15, but, um, you know, if he grows another inch or two over the next year, I think you could be talking about him as a, as a really, uh, a top pick. And the other one I think is interesting is Matthew Wood, who I didn't really know much about coming into uh, the tournament, but he's, he's a big winger who is lighting up, uh, the, uh, the BCHL right now with the Victoria Grizzlies. I think he's got like 30 points in 15 games there or something like that to start the season. Um, it's a big winger, really good hands, really good shot, very creative offensive player. Skating's just okay. Uh, his college commitment right now is to the University of Connecticut, uh, which would be interesting if a, if a really top-end prospect ends up going to UConn. Uh, so we'll see how that, where, you know, how his, um, you know, what, what decisions he makes in the coming years. Um, but those are the four guys that, that really stood out to me, four premium forward prospects for the 2023 draft. Would he go to UConn next year, Matthew Wood? Or would he, yeah, would so he the, wait? So, so typically you would need to accelerate for, to do that. UConn did that with Jan Kuznetsov. They brought him in a year early because just because, you know, they're not – UConn's a good school and they're a good hockey program, but they're not BC, NODAC, Denver. So they sometimes they'll – that's a, something that a school like that would do to incentivize a top prospect to come would be like, hey, you can come here a year early kind of thing. Play here during your draft season, even as a 17-year-old. He's not a late birth date. Like, like say like a Jack Hughes would be there at Northeastern this year. He's a late birthday. This is a normal year to be there. Um, so like I said, well, there's a lot of things we need to, we will see on. I don't know where he'll end up next season. It'll be interesting to watch. I mean, when we talk about the kind of numbers and the kind of dominance that he's shown in the BCHL, uh, typically like he's approaching a point there where you'd like to see a guy be challenged at a, at a next level. But you know, when, when the next level is college, there is that other academic wrinkle. Are they ready to go to, to college element to all of this that, um, that gets pretty interesting for the kids who who choose to go that route. Yes, I'm sure the WHL will be knocking. Uh, <laughs> he's he's drafted by Regina, so you can you know there will be the argument of come play with Connor Bedard next season, kind of thing. Like, um, so yeah, so we'll see on that front. Yeah. All right. The rest of your CHL trip, um, or sorry, your Canada trip included some CHL stuff. I know you saw some uh, some big names: Ty Nelson, Tristan Luno, Lucas Cormier. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically about the Winnipeg games that you saw. A couple of guys in this 2022 draft, uh, a couple of forwards in the 2022 draft, um, who who are pretty big names: Matt Savoy and, and Connor Geeky. What you saw out of them um, in in your in your trip to Canada? Yeah, I watched two games of theirs. Uh, Geeky was better in one game. Savoy was better in the in the other game. Geeky is six three center with great hands, great offensive instincts. Um, you know, has really has you know. When you watch him, it's easy to get excited about the pro potential because of the size and the skill. Um, his feet are are a concern. Um, you know, just like with his brother Morgan, who plays in Seattle. Um, you know, obviously Connor is way ahead of him as a prospect at the same age. Um, but I like him. He's a really strong prospect. He works really hard. Uh, his scoring is not super great for a top prospect, but there's like an asterisk on his scoring in that Winnipeg is arguably the best team in the WHL. Uh, they have a very deep offensive team. I think they've got like three of the top five scores in the WHL this season. So he's often been on the second power play unit. Uh, and so like I said, I think, you know, there's a lot to like about this player. Is he going to be like a top? There's some guys I've talked to who think he's a top five pick. Some that I think he's more in the teens. We'll see how the rest of his year goes, see how that all pans out. But he's definitely a premium prospect. Uh, and Savoy, um, you know, 5'9 guy, really good hands, really good offensive brain. He can shoot the puck. He works hard. 
Uh, the debate that I've always had on him, we've talked about on this podcast, and I talked about with scouts all last weekend, um, was where uh, where are his feet? Like, is this guy going to be? Is this guy a dynamic enough skater to be like a top five pick as a guy who's leading the WHL in scoring? Or at least he was. I think he might have lost it, maybe like a point or two, but or I think he's right there. Regardless, he's like he's in that right right at the top of the WHL scoring race. Um, and when I saw the first game I watched, I thought he kind of looked the feet looked kind of heavy. I didn't think he was really separating. The second game, I thought the feet actually looked quite good. And I think like talking to scouts, that's kind of one thing they they brought up with me is that. Uh, that there is some speed there. He doesn't use it as frequently as they'd like him to. The, the game can use a little bit more pace overall. But, like, you know, that's a question I've been asked about my writing. Is like, hey, you know, why do you keep saying he's not an elite skater? And I may have been a little harsh on the skating. Maybe I got to move it up like a half grade or something like that. Um, but I probably wouldn't call him an elite small guy feet kind of thing. I wouldn't, like, uh, like, like say, like Max Domi was when he was, when he was draft eligible. He was not invited to Canada's uh, World Junior camp. I mean, what what is the ramifications of that for him? Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. I think for a guy who, like I said, who is 5'9", and maybe I can concede I, I underrated the skating a little bit, but he's probably not an elite, elite skater. Um, I mean, his, his calling card is his offense. And if you're not going to, you know, be a top nine forward on Canada – Maybe even get some, you know, power play time, second unit. Like, there's where, where's that guy going to play on that U20 team? He's not going to be a penalty killer. Um, so, you know, that's why you know, the guys who play towards the end of the lineup end up being like invites, like say Dawson Mercer was when he was draft eligible, where he can kind of fill that hybrid fourth line, thirteenth four type of role kind of thing. Um, they usually don't. It's why Cole Perfetti got, you know, got cut during his season, you know, because guys like that, it's hard for them to make that team as a, as a 17 year old. Who, uh, I mean, so, so the Canada's camp is coming up here. I mean, who are you watching as they go into to their camp? What are the big battles that people should, should be attuned to um, on team Canada? I think the defense is going to, have to really sort itself out um, in, in the U sports games. They're going to play two games against the uh, Canadian university players. Um, so I think you obviously know Owen Powers on the team. You know Caden Gooley's on the team. But but after those two, uh, there are other guys that I think have really good arguments. Like I think Lucas Cormier is very likely to be on the team. I think Olin Zellweger has a pretty good shot to be on the team. I think Demon Hunt has a good shot to be on the team. But I could see ways where this things go sideways, especially for like the guys who are kind of going to go there as like the penalty kill like type of guys. I think. After power, they're going to be looking to Zellweger or Cormier as power play guys on the second unit, especially now that Brent Clark was not invited. Um, so now you're looking at the penalty kill type of guys who are the third pairs. And I think there's kind of a blend between Damon Hunt in uh, uh, Jaw, Carson Lambos in Winnipeg, Ryan O'Rourke in uh, the suit, Donovan Sobrango in Grand Rapids, uh, Ronan Seeley in Everett. Uh, I might be forgetting somebody, and I apologize if I do. But there's kind of like these blend of guys, like the five to seven roles. Uh, there's they can bring they're going to bring eight defensemen, but but only you know realistically six are going to get regular ice time, and they can they can dress seven um, that are going to you know have to find a way to sort out who's really going to be on the team or not. And then we do not have a final roster for Team USA yet. We still we still have their camp coming up here too, but. Their camp roster is is pretty close to. Uh, I mean, they don't have too many cuts to make here. I think they have they have ten defensemen in camp, seventeen forwards in camp, four goalies in camp. That leaves them just a little bit of trimming around the edges left. Where are the battlegrounds there? 
Yeah, like you said, I think that we have you know most of the names there. Frankly, it's most of the names we saw at the World Junior Camp yeah. in the summer. I think you know, a lot of that got sorted out there and and a little bit from the first half. Um, they said there's going to have to. I think you can kind of like look at a couple of guys there, like you know the last couple of defensemen. Is it going to be, you know, is it is it going to be Trust Scott that has to go? Is it going to be Kaiser that has to go? Uh, I'm I might be forgetting one or two, one one of the other names, but there's you know you're basically trying to figure out who's your last couple of defensemen, who's your last couple of forwards. You know, you have this guy, you have like Dominic James from Minnesota Duluth, who kind of came out of nowhere. People like yep. his skating, his work ethic. You know, is he actually going to make it through or not? Uh, and they're going to pick out a pick out some goalies. I think Dylan Silverstein, even though he's 17, will be on the team. I think uh, after Drew Camesso, they, they're kind of slim pickings uh, at goalie, but I think there's a lot of love for him in USA Hockey right now. I don't think I don't know if he's actually going to get games or not. He does maybe one of those things where he's like. Um, Gets like one of those games against like one of the, le- the lesser teams kind of thing where they mm-hmm. get 15 shots. Uh, but I think those, you know, there's like just with USA, there's going to be a, a little bit of sorting out just on the on the edges of the roster there. I don't think there's a lot of big decisions to make. I think they made a lot of their big decisions um, when they when they announced their cap roster. And then we do have Sweden and Finland's as we record this now their actual World Junior rosters. Any big surprises for you in terms of someone who got on or someone who got left off? Uh, yeah, I think with Sweden, uh, one thing that's interesting, it's a very older roster. Like There were no draft eligibles. When they had their U24 Nations in November, they brought Jonathan Lekaramaki, they brought Liam Olgren, uh, 17-year-olds, and I thought they played well at that event. Uh, but they opted to go for a little bit of an older roster there. Um, I think Detroit fans were a little uh, rattled when uh, their second-round pick, Walinder, uh, w- was not invited. Um, I'm not... I probably would have brought him, but I don't think it's unreasonable that they didn't bring him. I thought he had a good enough year in Sweden that he probably merited an invite. Um, I think there was always kind of been a, this guy's been a lot of really toolsy, not always sure on 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 how he actually plays, kind of thing. Big good skater. I think the puck game's always been kind of a question: is he a good enough defender? That kind of thing. Um, but there's a lot of tools there that's always been attractive with Wallander. Uh With Finland, I thought it was interesting that Brad Lambert actually was on the roster. Um, because as you might remember, on the initial U20 roster that was released in November, he wasn't on there until there were uh, an injury to Joachim Kamel that put him back on. And I thought his U24 Nations was was good enough, and it seems like the coaches agreed. And and he's on there. How his tournament actually goes will be more interesting. You know, does does can he stay in the lineup regularly? Can he generate offense consistently? Because he had an amazing World Juniors last year, if you recall. Um, and the other one that was interesting, I thought, was having uh, that Samu Salmanen, who I thought was one of the best players on Finland's U18 team last year, was not on the roster. And I don't think it's unreasonable. I don't think he's off to a great first half, the New Jersey third-round pick. But you have a guy like Cali Vason and the New York Rangers fourth-round pick, who was like the fourth, third-line forward on that team, where Salmanen was the number one center. And a year later, the kind of like their positions have flipped in the eyes of the Finnish Federation. It is going to be interesting. With Lambert's kind of in this interesting situation where – He's a, he's a little bit of a surprise add to the roster, but also he's one of the most fascinating players of the tournament. Um, he's, and, and all of that while being a returning player who had a good tournament last year. Yeah, I'm not surprised he's on the roster. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. It seemed like he was falling out of favor. He didn't have the greatest first half, but it seems like he showed enough. He scored a little bit more in recent weeks. He had a good enough U24 nations where I think they looked at him and they were willing to give him another chance. And it'll, it'll be really interesting to see what he does with his opportunity. What's kind of the latest you've heard as to where teams are, are have been viewing Brad Lambert? Like, I mean, is he still 
borderline top 10? Is he in the teens now? Is he? I, I, is I, he would, I, I would say teens is probably more what I'm hearing along the lines now. I don't think people are scared of him. Like I don't think like he's dropping like a rock. I think there are some reasonable apprehensions about things in his game that have caused people some concern. And I think 11 to 20 is probably his range right now. All right. Should be interesting to follow him. Should be. I mean, I, this is one of my favorite tournaments of the year. So uh, what we're going to have a lot more previewing that uh, coming up here, but we're going to take another break and, and we'll wrap up with the mailbag. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, uh, we'll take this one home with the mailbag. Uh, short mailbag today, but but some good stuff in here, and I got a couple big 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 blah. a couple big picture questions, a couple more specific questions. But I wanted to start with one of the big picture ones. I thought this was really interesting from Benjamin N. On average, when is a draft pick most valuable as a trade asset? Is it pre-draft? Is it at the draft? Is it when they're a prospect, or is it when they are a rookie entering the NHL? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And obviously, like, it, it depends on their trajectory, obviously. Like, you, you would argue, you know, we talked about how Trevor Zegers' trajectory earlier in the show, and obviously Trevor Zegers is more valuable as a player. Now that he looks like an NHL star than he did as a seventh or eighth overall pick whenever he was whenever he was taken. Um, I would say, traditionally, their value is at the highest the earlier on they are. I think typically... Um, you will find with prospect value when they get drafted, the value is at a certain point and either the value will either at that point after will either, if they progress well, will skyrocket to a point they're basically untradeable or if they don't perform, they start to decline over time. Like we can use the Rangers, you know, Capo Caco, the secondary got drafted would have been an incredibly valuable asset. And he's still a very valuable asset right now, but you would argue his trade value has diminished by a notable amount over the last couple of years. Whereas you go to like the Red Wings and, and Lucas Raymond was a very valuable prospect at the time he was drafted. But now he's like, there was at the time he was drafted, there was a trade package you could have put together that would have been reasonable. That could have got the Red Wings interested that Red Wings fans would be like, Oh yeah, we could trade Lucas Raymond for, this guy, that guy, that guy, we would be fine with it. But now you you can't, you literally can't trade the guy. Like there's no package that someone could reasonably put together that would make the team excited. So I would say typically earlier on is when the value is at the highest. Is why you see prospects get traded later on, you know, when they, not when they bust, but when they're typically underperforming expectations or they're good players, but they're just not special players. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense to me. I mean, if, if you wanted to even just kind of use like a median, uh, teams that are picking pretty high don't tend to trade their picks at all. But if you want to just use like a late teens, early 20s pick, like you can even just kind of reason it out with yourself. Like, do you want abstract first round pick in February at the trade deadline? Does that sound more attractive? Does the 21st pick in the draft sound more attractive on the day of the draft? Or does this prospect that now has a name and, and it's locked in, there's no more um, kind of uncertainty variance in, in play there 
sound better the day after the draft. Obviously, I, I agree with your point. If, if you get a, you know, a, a player at 21, I mean, David Pasternak was in the late 20s. At some point, a year in, David Pasternak is, is what you just said. You're, there's no way you're trading him. But I think that abstract first round pick in February probably sounds the most appealing because it's a little bit of the, the mystery box factor of it could be anything. Right. And also, just I think in general, um, there's a time value, like, you know, the time value of money doesn't really apply to prospects, but there's a kind of a similar logic in that, you know, when you're building a team, you're on a clock essentially, and you need players now, not in five years, which, you know, kind of harkens us back to the Mishkov discussion. But, uh, so I think there's more value on getting assets into your organization now, um, as opposed to, you know, trading even for a future first round pick, I like saying trying to trade for like a 23 first round pick, for example. Since you mentioned uh, going back to the Mitchkov discussion, I'll go to our next question from Samuel Delorme, who said, uh, given that he signed in the KHL for three years after his draft, what what does Matvey Mitchkov have to do in order to be selected first overall in 2023? We kind of mentioned it earlier, but I think on a performance level, um, he's going to need to be incredible. And he has been incredible so far. Like He's done everything you've wanted him. You know, he's probably going to make the World Juniors as a 16-year-old, and we'll be curious to see how he does um, in that environment this winter. But in his next season, um, I, pres- he w- I presume he will be, but he will absolutely need to be a full-time player with Scott in the KHL. He will need to be good, not great, because it's the KHL, and he's going to be on a good team where he won't have opportunity to play You know, all the minutes in the, in the world. But he's going to need to show he can be a good player on that team, that he can help that team win games, whether it's a top nine, top six, four to the power, regular power play kind of thing. Like he's going to need to make a di- make a difference for them, and then he's going to go to the World Juniors, and he's going to need to kick ass there. You know, the, I presume Bedard and Fantilli will both be there, and that will be a measuring stick uh, for the three of them. Even though I think there's going to be a debate because Bedards are really young. Uh, 04, Mitchkov's a late 03. There's nearly a full year age difference between them, so that's going to be a balancing factor there uh, for them. But uh, for, for Mitchkov, that will be important. And then potentially even a senior tournament. Like I said, Ska is hosting uh, the world, you know, it's not Ska, but St. Petersburg's hosting the world championships. He might be a world championships invite uh, for, for, that, uh, uh, for that spring. So that would be really interesting too. But he's basically going to, he will need to be exceptional and so exceptional to the degree that he's not that he has created some separation between the other candidates, and if it's even close, then he's going to need to kind of give these teams some assurances that he's going to come at some point. I think everyone thinks kind of what you said before that he's going to come. All the good ones come, but if it's close, they need to feel rather sure about it. Um, if they if they really do think he's the best player. And to your point, like it could also be what do the other players have to do for him to go number one overall too? Like if they just flatten off a little bit, um, that obviously makes the path and the decision just as easy. And, and I think it's also going to matter a lot on kind of what we discussed, like what team is picking for yeah. overall. You know, that's that's going to be a huge variable too. Um, it's going to be, I think, be a really fascinating thing around the draft lottery next spring. Is let's say we get to that point and. Whether he is the clear number one or like kind of in the mix, maybe, or maybe he isn't, who knows? But let's just say he is in the mix. You know, I think that really, we could, we could talk about all that going into the draft lottery. Like, would this team take Mitchkov? Yeah, no, it, it's a great point. Uh, we also spent a lot of time, obviously, today on the World Juniors, and, and Michael has a question about Cole Perfetti and whether he would benefit from attending the World Juniors or should the Jets just keep him playing in the AHL? I think he would. I think there's a benefit to going there. 
Uh, he was good last year at the tournament. He was one of their like top six fours, but he wasn't he wasn't uh, a dominant uh, player at that level. And I think uh, I think there's a benefit for him going there and being the guy, you know, being the guy who's going to touch the puck, who's going to score whatever 10, 11 points, whatever it is, um, and being a go-to guy for Canada at that tournament. And you know, frankly, you know, it's it's really important for those Canadian players to try and win a gold medal. He won silver silver last time around. Obviously, he won gold of the World Championships, but he barely played at that thing. Um, I have no issues with him going there. He's been great in the American League. It's not like he's so clearly above the American League. He needs to play in the NHL right now. He's not there yet. I I think there's no issues with him going to the World Juniors and trying to be one of the best players there. We talked about Trevor Zegers's road to uh, to being where he is now. I mean, his his second year World Junior is to me really when his star took off and, and hit another level. Yeah, I think it's reasonable. I think his first World Juniors was excellent too. But it was, he was really good. If you remember, go back there was there was like debates about his ice time and stuff like that, and he was like he barely played, but he still was making like highlight reel assists and stuff like that, and and then his ice time went up towards the end. Um, but yeah, I think your argument is fair in that regard. Yeah. All right, uh, and then last one is from Shakunin. Who will have the biggest impact in the NHL, Owen Power or Jake Sanderson? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, you, I think they've both obviously been excellent this season. I think that's where, the, that's where this question is stemming from. They're both having uh, great 19-year-old seasons in college hockey. Um, both big, excellent skaters. Um, and I think Sanderson obviously showing a lot of offense this season, more than I thought he'd have. And uh, – Owen's offense has been tremendous too. Um, when I was watching the Oilers last night, I was wondering actually about that. Like, do you think, uh, from what you've seen of both of them, do you think a Darnell Nurse comp for Jake Sanderson is unreasonable? It's not unreasonable. I I almost would think. I mean, I, the one that I've, I I don't know. I mean, Heiskanen is kind of the one that comes to mind for me with with Jake Sanderson, and I, I don't right. know. Right, I was just because because the size element, the size element for Sanderson, it would be a little different than Heiskanen. That's why. No, you're right because Sanderson is is six two. I mean, is he he's six two? Right? Is he? Yeah, he's not tall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. So six, yeah, two, I mean, six, there two, could but... be something to that. There could be something yeah. to that. Yeah, that's why I was, that's, that's something I was thinking. Um, but like I say I, I love Nurse. I was, so it wasn't meant as a criticism of Sanderson. Um, um, so no, yeah, I, no like, I, think I like Darnell Nurse too. He's a great player. No, I don't know why. He gets criticized sometimes. That's why I don't, it's kind of weird. Um, but regardless, uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, I mean, they're great players. I would still lean towards Powers because he's this 6'6 giant who can, who's a, who, can, who can skate really, really well for his size. Um, if you want to argue to me the gap is closing, I can buy that argument. You want to argue that Luke Hughes has been closing the gap. He had a really bad last weekend, but overall his season has been really good. If you want to argue, like all three of those defensemen are, are having really exciting seasons right now. And uh, we'll see all three of them at this upcoming tournament. So it'll be interesting to see how they all fare. Yeah, I mean, and they're also just going to do it in different ways. Like, I think you're going to be able to keep having that debate even once they are in the NHL for five years. I think you're going to be able to have a reasonable de- debate about who's the better player and who's having the bigger impact, you know? Yeah, I don't know if all three of them will be tied together like that. Like, say, like a Sagan and Taylor Hall were, were tied together, sure. or, or 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 whatnot, or how like McDavid and like and like uh, not McDavid, uh, how Crosby and Ovechkin were tied together because they came into the league at the same time because because of that insane Calder race. Um, but uh, I do, I think there is something to watching all four of those Michigan players. Like, we got one question in there that we didn't we didn't put in about like where would Edvinson go. In a redraft, and it's like I don't know, like all four of those Michigan guys are having great years right now. Beniers, Power, 
uh, Johnson and Hughes, and you have you know other guys who are having great years. So it'll be really interesting to see how that whole Michigan class. I presume they're all going to sign at the end of the year, um, except for Hughes. I thought Hughes would play two years, but who knows? He's looked really good this season. I still expect he'll probably go back for the second year, but uh, just in general, I'll be curious to see how all four of those guys, whenever they whenever they sign, how that class uh, looks a couple of years from now. I think the two year college seems to be the move for for high prospect young defensemen. Yeah. I mean, that's what McCard did, Hughes did, Power did, Sanderson did. I think yeah, they're all better and, for it. And Luke told me as much, and I, I think that's going to be what he's going to do. But even like talking to people around the game, I think everyone said, yeah, he's probably staying two years. At, and we, talk, we talked about it in the summer. And then there's talking to people like in the late fall, early winter here. They're like, eh, like you know, me, he's probably going to do it. But like, I don't know. He, he looks really good right now. Hey, New Jersey probably is like watching this thing. Hey, he probably could help us. But uh, it might be, like you said, best for his development, looking at all the recent and comparables to do the two years. And then just to wrap on Sanderson, I mean, to, to your point about Darnell Nurse, like it, it really has been his aggressiveness and in jumping into offense and, and being willing to use his feet for in that way. I mean, we always knew he could use his feet to defend outstanding and transition, but, yeah. but the offense and especially like when I've seen him jump into plays, it's been, it's, I mean, that was not the narrative on him, at least right around the time of his draft. Right. And the reason why I said Nurse is I think Nurse is a great skater. There's been surprising amount of offense from him and he's a very physical player too. And that's kind of a, the combination of, and he has size, which is what I kind of see in Sanderson. He has all the elements you want in a modern NHL defenseman kind of thing. Um, you know, he has the great feet, he has great skill, he's physical, he's big, you know, just, he has all the assets. Um, and, you know, I think power is the same way too, just maybe like a slightly higher degree, but not that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching some some Carter Mazer clips uh, last week because I, Mazer's a Red Wings prospect. I was doing a, a story on him and updating where he's at. He's off to a good start. He, I think he's got a really good chance to be on Team USA. But I, I watched one of the games I watched was against North Dakota because I wanted to see him against the best talent. And there were multiple times in that game where I was just you know very audibly impressed by by Jake Sanderson. So I think he's a hell of a player. Yep. No, he should be uh, helping Ottawa in the very near future. Absolutely. All right. That is going to do it for us this week, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. Please follow the Athletic Hockey Show on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a rating and review if you're enjoying it. That really helps us out. And subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from our entire network. It's going to start with a 30-day free trial, and then it's just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, annual subscriptions to The Athletic are just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Do that so you can read Corey's fantastic Modvin Mitchkov piece and a bunch of other great hockey stuff throughout the season and all sports. It gets you access to everything. You're going to want to jump on that, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.